Welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. I've been interested in descriptive economic geography for a long time. It's not a field you're likely to have heard about, and in truth, I can't think of any other geographer who in the last 20 years would have described themselves in those words. That's because over the last several decades, economic geography has made itself into a spatial science, worshipping in the temple of theory. I, perhaps foolishly resisting the tide, have almost no interest in theory. Ideas? Sure. Can't live without them. But theory's different. I take as my mentor, Jack Webb, in the old TV show Dragnet. In every episode, he managed to tell a witness. Just the facts, ma'am. So... I watch the antics of Ryanair and the meteoric success of Air Asia. I try to keep up with IKEA's efforts in India. I'm curious about cement plants in Nigeria and supermarkets in Brazil. I watch shopping centers die in the United States and online shopping flourish in India. I remain curious, though mystified, how Dubai persuades foreigners that it is paradise on earth. What ideas have emerged from this study? Perhaps there should be many, or at least several, but really there is just one. And it's emerged not from descriptive economic geography itself, but from the contrast between descriptive economic geography and something else. That something else began 35 years ago when I turned down an invitation to visit the Taj Mahal. Tourist trap, I thought and it took me another dozen years to get there. It was dawn when I finally saw thousands of tons of stone levitate ever so slightly in the dawn mist. I think I still remember that moment. Since then, I've managed to visit Kajarao and Konark, Ranakpur and Ramapa, Sarnath and Sanchi, Badami and Bhubaneswar. I've gone north to Kiva and Samarkand, east to Pagan and Angkor, south to Anuradhapura and Sigiriya, and west to Cordoba and the Marrakesh. It sounds as if I'm working my way through one of those books with titles like A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, but seeing those places, I sometimes whisper to myself, that's incredible. I chuckle when I realize that I'm echoing India's Ministry of Tourism. But it's true, I tell myself. I apologize for all that name-dropping, but... I guess I wanted to build up some context and suggest that India is just awash with places to see. Anyway, so we have two data sets, parenthesis, dare I call them that? They might be labeled old and new, or traditional and modern, or religious and secular. Some might call one set beautiful and the other ugly. Still, another distinction is between objects with or without a spirit. I prefer yet another distinction, one that I can best approach through an anecdote. I'm stopped at a traffic light in the college town where I live. It's a well-engineered intersection, about 100 feet square, six lanes crossing four. Two of the, cor- pardon me, two of the corners have drugstores. Not Smith's Drugs or Peterson's or Main Street Drugs, but Walgreens and CVS, which between them operate two-thirds of all the pharmacies in the United States. A third corner is occupied by a new bank. I forget its name, 
but that's because banking laws in the United States have encouraged the development of local banks. My town of 100,000 people has at least 15. A few are national, but most are local, and several have more than one location. I tell myself that we are ridiculously overbanked, but I must be wrong. The fourth corner has a dentist's office. It's a freestanding structure built of wood and shaped like a small-town railway station in the Old West. A replica steam locomotive, full-sized but made of wood, sits out front. The only thing functional about it is the bell, a nice touch that attracts kids. Until a couple of years ago, the site was occupied by a restaurant that specialized in fried chicken. It was a chain, and as chains sometimes do, it broke. The building sat vacant for a couple of years before being demolished. I thought we might get another bank, but the dentist came along. He keeps the office open six days a week, but he doesn't work there. He's busy expanding his chain of what he calls dental depots, or I want to say dental depots. Now with over a dozen offices spread from Phoenix to Dallas and Tulsa, he has contracted with two young dentists to do the work. They move on every year or so, but are replaced by newcomers. In the minute while I'm waiting for the traffic light to change, I'm struck by the fact that everything in my line of sight has been built to make money. It's an odd epiphany because it's such an elementary truth. What could be more obvious? But then I think of the Taj. I'm smart enough not to make confident assertions about why it was built, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't built to make money. Nor was the tomb of Itamad Udawla just upstream on the other side of the river. Nor, unlike the houses that sprout in subdivisions and complexes on the periphery of every city on the planet, were the houses I see in the villages around Agra. Yet here, at this corner of drugstores and banks and fake railway stations, if you take away the pursuit of money, the buildings vanish. I'm not even sure that the town exists. Maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. But I think it is a very big deal when societies shift from doing things to live, building a house, plowing a field, baking a loaf of bread, worshipping a god, to doing things to make money. Here I must erect a warning sign. It reads, This way lies metaphysics. I turn for protection to the late A.K. Ramanujan, son of the great mathematician. The essay I have in mind is called, Is There an Indian Way of Thinking? Ramanujan writes, To describe the exterior landscape is also to inscribe the interior landscape. What the man has, he is. The landscape which he owns and which he lives represents him. It is his property in more senses than one. That's a scary sentence. Paraphrasing this, and with apologies to Descartes, I tell myself that I am what I think. In a world made from money, I think about money and myself become money. I read that a hotel is being refurbished for $4 million. I read that the S&P fell 0.16% yesterday. I read that oil prices are approaching a bear market again. And, of course, I go into the drugstore and see that something or other is on sale. I look for my credit card. It goes on and on. Natalia Dushkina comes to mind. A Russian professor of architectural history, she talked to a reporter some years ago about Moscow and said, We have built up this strong feeling that life exists only in money. It is the most horrible thing that happens to people. What are we to do about this? The short answer is that we might as well get out of the way because this train isn't stopping. Isn't that what experience teaches? I recall my first visit to Delhi. The only traffic was at flyovers under construction for the 1982 Asian Games. 
and the only cars on the roads were lumbering ambassadors and orphaned Fiats. By the 1990s, I could and did show up at an Avis office on Barcomba Road, pick up a self-drive car, and tootle off to Hissar. It was a big change, and I welcomed it. Freedom. But driving in India today is much less fun. Stuck in traffic on the way in from the airport, I observe the roadside trees and pity them. Some of you perhaps remember Frank Brain, the district collector of Gurgaon in the 1920s and the man responsible for the once famous Gurgaon experiment. I should say for those of you who don't know this part of the world that uh, the airport is in Gurgaon or adjoining it. Brain's tombstone is in Ashil, a, Nor- a Norfolk village, and it bears an inscription from, from Luke, I am among you as he that serveth. I assume Brain chose this and did so in complete sincerity, but I doubt that he appeared as a servant to Gurgaon's villagers when he browbeat them into buying milk-white bullocks so big that the villagers couldn't afford to feed them. Those of you familiar with Gurgaon today will be amused by the description offered in the District Gazetteer published in 1884. The town is, quote, well known for the excellence of its spring water and the salubrity of its climate and is on these accounts resorted to as a sanitarium for invalids. Sanatorium? Gurgaon? This is the home of Maruti. This is the stomping ground of Delhi Land and Finance. It's the Indian home of IBM, Deutsche Bank, and Nestle. The hulk of the Delhi metro station in Gurgaon is big enough to house a starship, and I've given up trying to stay abreast of Gurgaon's newest shopping centers. If, as I say, nobody is going to stop the development train, we may as well learn to compromise. In fact, we've been doing that for a long time. It is a transcendent irony that the colonial government introducing Asia to a world made for money should also have taken steps to save the monuments of the world they would begin to obliterate. Yet that is what happened with the French in Indochina, the Dutch in the East Indies, and of course the British from Jerusalem to Malacca. It's even what the Soviets did in Central Asia. That continent would be a vastly poorer place today without the efforts of the Archaeological Survey of India and the analogous departments of the French and Dutch and, yes, the Soviet governments. The places they saved are the heart of UNESCO's World Heritage List for Asia. Yet the places on that list are in their totality, like postage stamps on a football field. The result is that you'd best get up early if you want to have the Taj even remotely to yourself. Best come at first light if you want to see Beijing's Temple of Heaven on your own. There is another problem with heritage sites. It is the powerful wish of their managers to make the places pretty. Example, when I first saw Humpy in 1980, that elephant stables were deserted and sat on barren ground. Recently, I went back and found not only crowds, but elephant stables surrounded with lawns that no Vijayanagar king ever saw. The fort outside Aurangabad looks like a golf course, and the lawn in front of the shore temple at Mahabalipuram invites visitors to spread out on a blanket, open a picnic basket, and munch on a sandwich, while Durga gazes upon them and contemplates a lethal strike. Foreigners come looking for ancient treasures, but many of these monuments have been restored so clumsily that the precious connection with the past cannot survive the first close look. Think of the crude restoration of Narasimha at Hampi, or of the Jollies at the Diwani Khas at Fadapur Sikri. There's no need to pick on India. Grand Temple of Heaven was rebuilt after a fire in 1889. The timbers came from Oregon and were donated by an American shipping magnate whose actual name, unbelievably, 
was Robert Dollar. True, there are other kinds of cultural landscapes not made for money. UNESCO has recognized the paddy terraces of Banawi, Bali, Oman, and more recently of southern Yunnan. This is great, but these places have a very uncertain future, not just because they may be visited to death. I remember a visitor at Banawi using a phrase that has stuck by me. He said that the spectacular terraces were now only, quote, sentimental agriculture, maintained by landowners who could buy rice more cheaply than they could grow it. Won't the development train eventually pick up the men and women cultivating the terraces of the UNESCO sites? Hong Kong used to have rice terraces, but I believe they're all gone now. Some exasperated Malaysian irrigation engineers complained to me 30 years ago that as soon as they built a new project, the farmers abandoned it for city jobs. There's another point of compromise, however, one that could be enduring. It's the creation of places by people who have enough money that they can build with it, not for it. Oh my goodness, this is going in a direction I hadn't even thought about. My brother, for example, runs an artisan bakery about 50 miles north of San Francisco. He bakes about a 1,000 loaves of bread daily. He uses only organic ingredients, I'm tempted to say, of course, and bakes the bread in a wood-fired oven he built himself with expert help. He runs the bakery four days a week with the explanation that he doesn't need the money he could earn by baking five days a week, let alone six or seven. Customers sometimes come in and find that they have forgotten their wallets. No problem. Even if they are strangers, my brother tells them to pay him next time or put a check in the mail. He tells me that the few who never pay are not a problem. A rich customer once offered to bankroll my brother in building a chain of bakeries, but my brother turned him down flat. In a world made for money, my brother is an idiot. But he owns the building that houses the bakery, owns the house next door where he lives, and finds a ridiculous amount of time to play Brazilian drums and ride a surfboard. Well, I love my brother. I'm, I'm stepping aside for a second again. I love my brother, but you can ride a surfboard to the point where you can't do it much anymore. I think he's given that up, actually. Anyway, back to the text. It sounds kind of perfect, but there's a limit to this kind of compromise because it's restricted to small businesses. The world needs big ones, too. Most people want to have a hospital around when they need it, but they can't have hospitals without electricity. And electricity demands steel. Steel needs mills and railroads and mines. And they, in turn, need insurance companies, which cannot function without banks whose employees, we've come full circle, occasionally need hospitals. It turns out that however much we may hate the big companies dominating our economy, and most everyone except stockholders does hate them, a world made for money has its upside. And that upside can't operate, or at least never has operated, in the beguilingly Gemeinschaft style of my brother's bakery. Hmm. What then? At this point, we're entering the realm of science fiction. And according to our temperament and digestion, are free to choose between happy or wretched futures. I admit to having an inclination, but will play coy here and avoid speculation. The modest compromises I've touched on are worthwhile, I think, and I am tempted to add only that Voltaire was probably right with that famous last line from Candide, that is well said, replied Candide, but we must cultivate our garden. Hmm. Pretty upbeat. Or maybe just terminally naive. Anyway, that's it.